This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today, my guest is drummer and educator Jim White. Originally from Atlanta, Jim is an alum of the University of North Texas. Almost immediately upon graduation, Jim went on tour with the Manor Ferguson Band in 1995. Jim found himself in Nashville, Tennessee, where he quickly became an active performer and studio musician, working with a diverse array of artists, including J.D. Souther, Allison Krauss, Crystal Gale, Jerry Douglas, Pam Tillis, and many more. Jim is an accomplished jazz drummer, but his musicality and sensibilities have allowed him to adapt to many different musical situations, all the while remaining true to his voice on the instrument. His jazz credits include working with artists like Dick Oates, Joey DeFrancesco, Jim Ferguson, Chris Parker, and Annie Selleck, just to name a few. In 2005, he joined the faculty at the University of Northern Colorado, where he currently serves as a professor of music and jazz studies. In 2015, he was diagnosed with cancer and spent a year of his life overcoming and fighting off this horrible disease. He's been cancer-free for some time, but continues to monitor his health so he can remain cancer-free, teach, perform, and raise his young family in Colorado. August 7th is the Music City Drum Show here in Nashville, Tennessee. You can go to musiccitydrumshow.com to find out all you need to know about this event. There's going to be drum displays, sales, networking, and clinics. Uh, Near Z is going to be there. He's going to be doing a clinic with some special guests on Saturday. You don't want to miss this. It's like $3 a ticket. Uh, guys, check it out. Uh, 25,000 square feet of drums, cymbals, hardware sticks, all kinds of drum accessories. Uh, everyone's welcome to come out, shop gear, uh, drum brands from all around the world uh, right here in Nashville. The next day on August 8th, we're going to have an afternoon hang where everyone can get some food and drinks and see each other for the first time in a long time. Uh, Zach and I are going to be there. We've got a booth, actually, the day of the drum show on Saturday, and then he and I are going to be partly hosting this event with our friend J.C. Clifford and Mike Dawson. So it's going to be a great weekend, August 7th and 8th. Check it out, musiccitydrumshow.com. So we're trying something new for our Patreon members. If you are a Patreon of this podcast, you will have access to some bonus content that we are creating. As you probably know, we have interstitial music by the guests that we are interviewing uh, to break up the segments of our interviews. So in a nutshell, what this bonus content is, is a time that we take with the guest to deconstruct one of the recordings that they've done. It covers a wide range of topics that include what drums were used, how did they react to the songwriter or the producer, or was there something unique to the recording situation that would be super helpful for the working drummer. I'll make an announcement during the interview to say, hey, this is the song that we are deconstructing for our Patreon members. So for as little as a dollar, you can become a part of this community and help support the podcast here. So as you'll discover in our conversation that uh, my history with Jim goes back almost 20 years when I first moved to Nashville. Uh, he was very kind to me. Uh, it was great to talk to about music and drumming and jazz uh, while I was kind of finding my way in this new city. And uh, it was just really great to reconnect with him 
on this podcast, and so great to hear about him uh, remaining healthy and cancer-free over this time. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jim White. I guess what prompted a move to Nashville uh, was, uh, you know, I had been living in New York and I moved there uh, basically right after I got off the road with uh, Maynard Ferguson. And I'd been with him for a year when I got out of college, which was an amazing experience in itself. And then uh, I always, you know, thought I'm going to move to New York. That's where I want to be. And then uh, when I got up there, I, I was, I actually worked at a uh, studio, recording studio up there, uh, Battery Studios. That was mm-hmm. like the place where Jive Records was. That's kind of where they recorded all their stuff. I remember D'Angelo did his first record. Oh when wow! I was up there, but I was a studio assistant, and uh, so like when D'Angelo wanted uh, the honey that came in the little bear, I was the person that ran out to the store to get it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, but after working there, uh, like the night shift and everything for a while, uh, well, it was really a, just about a month. I got an opportunity to do this, uh, uh, get on this show called the Big Apple Circus, which all these great musicians were in the band. Ralph Alessi on trumpet, Curtis Folks was a trombone player. Um, and I actually replaced, connected to Nashville, uh, the drummer that was playing before me was an awesome drummer that you know, Pete Abbott. And uh, Pete, who's living there now, uh, was getting ready. He was doing this gig, and then he was getting ready to go out with the average white band. And so I ended up getting, oh, uh, uh, getting on that. And so I did that for a year and really learned a whole bunch. But the main thing I learned is that I didn't want to live in New York. <laughs> <laughs> and what a so, lesson <laughs> yeah so it was amazing because for the first time in my life you know i really came into uh came in touch with these other things that were really important to me uh, uh you know it just being from the south and being from atlanta you know there was uh, uh certain things that i missed you know like the trees and and uh even though you can find those things in new york you know there was just i realized that I probably couldn't, you know, uh, live there and be happy for the next 30 years or something. Mm-hmm. And after figuring this out, you know, I was still in contact with a couple of my friends that I went to college with at North Texas, and uh, namely being Jeff Coffin, the great saxophone player, yeah, yeah. and uh, Chris Brown, who lives there in Nashville, who was, is one of my heroes. He's, you know, got... Uh, helped get me on Maynard Ferguson's band and was like, you know, a brilliant drummer at North Texas. I just used to go hear him all the time. And uh, he became a great friend. We actually lived together when I first uh, moved to Nashville. Uh, But uh, those guys kind of helped me 
get down there and I ended up meeting the bass player, Jim Ferguson, who lives there, who happened to be working with Crystal Gale. And so, you know, when I first got there to do a couple of gigs, um, he told me that she was looking for a drummer. And so I went and, you know, auditioned and, uh, you know, got that gig, which was really nice to make the transition there because, um, she was working enough. I think she was doing about 40 dates a year. Uh, but it was a, it was a good gig. You know, she's doing a lot of orchestra gigs then. So a lot of times we just go out on the weekends and then, you know, I'd have kind of the time during the week to sort of check out, uh, things, uh, go see people play and sort of get an idea of what was going on there. Did you think that I could I could live here? I think I think this is where I'm going to be, or or is this a maybe a, a stopping point, or just leaving your world open? Well, I wasn't really sure at the time, yeah. uh, but uh, and and I didn't really know very much about country music. I mean, I had listened to some of it growing up. Uh, you know, like a Buck Owens was my guy, like yeah. when I was really, really little, you know, and, uh, I just, somebody happened to give me a Buck Owens record. So I had heard some of that music, but as far as, you know, imagining that I would ever be playing with country musicians that, that, uh, just, uh, didn't really occur to me. So, you know, I just had to kind of make that, uh, transition, and try to learn as much as I could about it, you know? Uh, so yeah, that's kind of, you know, when I got there, I had, a, I had a lot of work to do, uh, <laughs> to, to just learning and sort of catch up on some things, but I had some really good mentors there. One being, uh, the great fiddle player, buddy Spiker. Okay. And, uh, sort of, he kind of, uh, he, he was like a teacher in a way because he could, uh, he, he would get me on certain gigs and kind of teach me, you know, uh, what was appropriate, you know, a Ray Price shuffle rather than, you oh, know, okay. a BB King shuffle, that sort of thing. Yeah. So, but to answer your question, I really loved the vibe of Nashville because I, it, you know, it was a lot more like where I grew up, you know, I had the trees, I could get out, you know. Right, right. Uh, lived in a house there rather than an apartment. Um, and all the people in Nashville were just so nice. You know, people would say, well, you, you know, you may want to call this person when you would get to town. And, uh, you know, uh, nine times out of 10, not only would the person talk to you, but they would probably invite you over for dinner, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and all of a sudden there was all these wonderful people and at that time, everybody was working like crazy. You know, people were making their living just playing demo sessions, yeah. you know. Yeah. I mean, it was a, a really booming time there in Nashville, you know, really different than, you know, say today. Yeah, it, it, it breathes, it ebbs and flows, and, and uh, it's, it's hard to say where it's at right now. Um, I think as we're all coming out on the other end of 2020, we are one of the few music scenes that is almost back up into full swing. I mean, just, you know, without, without politicizing things, you know, Tennessee is, wasn't waiting for anybody to tell them what to do. So the music scene <laughs> followed suit, and they were like, well, we're playing, and here we go. And then you just had to make a personal choice how you wanted to uh, participate or not participate or in what capacity. So it's a blessing and a curse uh, at times, but at the same time, 
Um, everyone has found creative ways to to make it work. So it, it's it's going to be interesting what this next year brings as as things open back up. But it feels like the floodgates have opened and people are trying to make up for lost time. So we may be going through a new renaissance or more. But I, when I moved here in 2000, that a lot of people talked about the 90s and how just busy everyone was, you know, no matter what. Um, and that I was like, and some people were, you know, reminiscent and kind of felt sad that they, they missed that time, you know, and other yeah. people were like, yeah, well, we're now, what am I doing this week? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Who, who knows? Yeah. Well, and, and you were recording as well in Nashville, and so more than just playing and, and, and learning songs for a gig or a tour mm -hmm. and just kind of like fitting into that song list, you were fitting and finding ways to work. I mean, gosh, recording, there was a great track uh, that Alison Krauss uh, sang on that you, with Jerry Douglas on that um there's some other stuff that other you know just notable nashville artists that you recorded with and as i was listening to some of these recordings it fits the nashville or it fits the style but i still hear you i st you know how much did you feel like you could bring your sensibility to these nashville things did you feel obligated to really fit into the mold or just adjust and then bring your style and your musicality to these situations? Well, I think, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough that some of the things that, you know, I would get called to do were usually because somebody wanted something a little bit different, you mm -hmm. know? I mean, it's funny because I, I think most of the work that I got initially when I came to Nashville, recording-wise, was because I played with wire brushes, and people liked that sound, and I don't think there was that many people that were, were doing a lot of that. I mean, I remember one of the first sessions that I got when I was there uh, was for Eddie Bears, actually. He was producing a session on oh, his wow. uh, wife, and uh, and she was kind of singing some, uh, you know, some kind of some standards and that sort of thing. Uh, Jim Ferguson played bass, I remember, Matt Rawlings. And, uh, but I think one of the reasons that he had me was because of... Uh, because of the wire brushes, you know, and and then I ended up doing like a record with an orchestra with Lori Morgan and some different things, which was a lot of brushes, you know. Yeah. So that just uh, doing something that was a little bit unusual in that town at the time uh, was, I, I you know, opened up some work to me that that really wouldn't be have been available. And then from from that point, I. <laughs> One thing that helped is I had a gig every, I think it was every Monday or every Tuesday. We used to play this place down on Broadway, which there was nothing really on Broadway that was going at the time. I mean, I could go down and park right in front of this joint. Which, <laughs> yeah, so it was You can't even walk in front of it now. Oh, oh gosh. <laughs> I, I, every time I go down there, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm floored on how much it's changed, you know. 
but we used to play there, and it was Buddy Spiker, this fiddle player I was telling you about. And he had uh, a, a Western swing band, which I didn't really know anything about. Spade Cooley, Bob Wills, right. uh, Tex Williams, any of that stuff. And so I had to kind of learn you know, that material. To, you know, He would tell me kind of what to listen to. And again, a lot of that stuff was playing brushes. And it was just a nice thing because it would turn into this jam session and all these great musicians and people would come out and sit in when they were in town. I remember, yeah. you know, Bill Monroe, uh, uh, Merle Haggard, uh, uh, Johnny Gimble, the great uh, fiddle player, uh, would would come out. And then uh, all of a sudden I've kind of found myself to, on these country Oh, you know, session dates with people like uh, Buddy Emmons or uh, uh, Pete Wade, uh, Pig Robbins. Mm, wow. And uh, so I, I just tried to learn that, uh, you know, learn and fit in as best as I could. So it was, a, it was a, a, you know, kind of a mixture of things at the beginning and just trying to, you know, serve the music and, and take care of business uh, the best I could. But thankfully, you know, a lot of the projects that I got would get called for. People were just looking for something a little bit uh, unusual or a little bit different. And so, you know, some of the parameters parameters that I would go in to record on, uh, people were not really, you know, asking me to necessarily play like a, you know, a typical session, you know. Mm-hmm. Um it was, uh, you know, I remember one time uh, I, I was recording some stuff for uh, great Charlie Peacock, who's a great, you know, uh, uh, producer there and everything. And so I went in and I didn't know what he was going to be recording because I've heard so many different things. And I asked him, I said, well, what kind of drums, you know, do you want me to bring? He was like, you bring whatever you want, you yeah, know. And, yeah. and uh, I went in there and and it was funny because... I, I, he had already recorded a bunch of the tracks. So I was kind of overdubbing and, and Victor Wooten was playing bass. And he said, uh, I said, well, you want to play the track for me? Let me, let me hear it. And he's like, no, I don't want you. I don't want you to hear it. I, I'm just going to put it in the red and I want you to just react as you're hearing it for the first time. And that is what he ended up keeping. Oh my for <laughs> for his record, you know. So, I, I it was amazing that he would just that's what he would want because a lot of people that's that's not really their thing. So that's what I mean. How you know some people would ask me to come in and then you know try to put me in some sort of unusual circumstances and we would just do it. And and you know I love all kinds of music. I mean I you know nowadays I I do play a lot of jazz music and I love that. But just the same, I love, uh, uh, you know, I listen to, to everything, you know, yeah. Southern rock. I've been listening to this great drummer, Bill Stewart, not, the, you know, the jazz drummer, okay. Bill Stewart, but the, the, the uh, um, house rhythm section drummer, really, at Capricorn Records, you know, him and Johnny Sandlin originally. And, man, he plays great. I've never met him, but he's kind of a... Uh, the another Bill Stewart that mm-hmm. has recorded a bunch and played great. So I just love uh, all different kinds of music and try to, you know, uh, do a knowledgeable job of, of, uh, uh, you know, trying to play it. And in, and in Nashville, that was just the only way you could really make a living. You know, you, 
You had to do a bunch of stuff, right? Well, you did, but at the same time, I mean, to kind of unpack some of these things that you're talking about, one of the questions I had kind of set up was, um, see if I can find, <laughs> see if I can find it. Uh, with the variety of music you've recorded, are you considering different gear besides the obvious? Like we all bring like a bunch of cymbals and snare drums mm -hmm. and things like that. But like considering different kinds of gear to the session, and and you were asking that with Charlie, you were like, "Hey, what what do I need to bring?" And yet, as people were getting to know you, and I, I'm I know that oftentimes there's a standard, there's a certain expectation across the board, no matter what you're playing, no matter what style you're playing, or whatever, just musicality, good feel, good time. Um, touch and tone, you know, all those things apply no matter what style you're playing. And so all these different country musicians, they recognize that in you and like, we're just going to throw Jim into this, but then let's take advantage of his improvisational skills, his listening skills, uh, his style, his unique style. And the example that you give of Eddie hiring you to do a session for him is just to me is it's the poster child example of do what you do because guess what if you if you're thinking oh i'm going to try and play like eddie bears on an eddie bears session he'll just record it you know <laughs> yeah, that's right yeah i mean I, I i was like what am i doing here you know i was surprised when he uh when he called me you know for sure i think one thing that was happening at the time is there was a lot of real mentorship uh, coming from the uh, the guys that had been working there for a, a really long time. Wow! Yeah, and um, I, you know, I remember on that particular session, I went to go sign the card, you know, at the end of the session, and just filled out my name and and everything. And then I remember him coming back to me, Eddie, and bringing the card, and and he had checked uh, double scale, oh and he God. said, he goes, uh, always double scale. You know, you're, you know, make sure that you, that's what you are doing, you know, because, you know, as musicians, you know, you deserve that. We deserve that. Now from, you know, was I able to make double scale, you know, after that? <laughs> of course not. But I think he was trying to, you know, like so many musicians at that time set a precedent for what we do and say, you know, there's, you know, value in what we do and don't sell yourself short or, or underestimate yourself. And, uh, that was a thing at the time, you know, the, the musicians union was such a, a strong, had such a strong presence there. And I think that the older musicians would, uh, you know, cultivate the importance of that with the younger musicians at the time. I think that that has maybe kind of gotten away. We've gotten away from that a little bit, but, uh, but it was, it was a great thing there, and I, I'm still a big supporter of that. But it, it, he, you know, I'll never forget that because uh, yeah, that was a real learning moment, and it was special that he was able to just, you know, share that with me. Like, hey, kid, you know, <laughs> this is how you should uh, be approaching things. <laughs> so, well, for sure, and and this has come up in the podcast before, but like when you undervalue yourself, you're diminishing the value in the whole community you know and it exactly. affects it affects everyone and then people that are writing the checks and hiring talent they're like hey guess what we could just we don't have to pay that much because there's going to be a bunch of people in line that that are going to 
accept whatever we give them. But if if collectively we raise the bar, you know, and get paid what we're worth, and like, but but again, Na- Na- Nashville's not good at that, you know. Oh. Um, but um, wow, that's that's awesome, man. Uh, so uh, right now, tell me about what you're doing now uh, in in Colorado, which is awesome. Well, I, I I teach at the University of Northern Colorado that has a, a great jazz studies program. I had known about it here for quite a long time uh, before uh, coming out here. Um, I had actually, you know, I had left uh, Crystal Gale's band, and one of the things that I wanted to do was I wanted to uh, write some big band music, and I wanted to study composition. I took a uh, a composition class at the Nashville Jazz Workshop with one with Jeff Steinberg, who's a great composer, arranger. I used to do a lot of sessions for him that he was uh, producing. And I said, hey, Jeff, what if I come take this class? There was only five of us and he would have us write a tune each week and then come in and we would listen to it and talk about it. And uh, he was an amazing teacher. And so he encouraged me to, uh, to, you know, continue to study composition. And there's this great teacher at uh, MTSU, uh, Jamie Simmons. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to study with him. Uh, you know, I ended up going back to school at MTSU to get my master's and, uh, uh, in, in composition. And so uh, it was really a great time because I was older and you know, was really hungry to learn and just, you know, started writing and that sort of thing. And so uh, when I was doing that, uh, I had also been coming out here to be a part of this huge jazz festival that uh, the university puts on every year. And so I would come and work as a side man, you know, people like Bob DeRoe were here and everything. And uh, the director of the program kind of put together this position and encouraged me to apply for it. I hadn't been involved with academia, you know, and didn't really have eyes to do so. But, uh, you know, I thought, okay, well, I'll come and interview and, and, you know, got the position, which I was really reluctant to take at first because I felt like, well, I love Nashville. Things were going well. And yeah. I, uh, uh, but I thought, okay, well, I'll try it. And I'll I know, I know this guy, Matt Krause, he seems really nice. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to see him as often if I move. That's cool, Jim. Thanks, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it was, uh, I, I don't really know how I did it at the time because I would come, I would, uh, come here to teach during the week and then I could fly on Southwest out like Thursday night. I mean, on uh, Frontier, actually, at the time. Right. Fly out Thursday yeah. night, and then I could come back early Monday morning. Uh, and the flight would get in, like, at 7.45 Colorado time. I'd be able to to get back up to school and to teach. But I wanted to stay connected to what I was doing in Nashville and, uh, and, and kept my home there. And that's when I was doing the stuff with J.D. Souther, and I was still playing with Jack Pearson. It was just a lot of fun. Uh, uh, but you know, I mean, I look back on it now to think that I wasn't, I was possibly not going to take this opportunity. I'm so glad that I did, you know, um, and coming out here to, to Colorado in this area has just been fantastic. There's an amazing community of musicians here, people that have moved here, uh, from all over the country 
And, uh, and I just, I love teaching and I love being out here. So still just doing the combination of things, uh, you know, this just, you know, kind of led to this position and just trying to take what I've, what opportunities present themselves, you know, and that's how we can put food on the table and, uh, right, you know, right, right. pay the rent. And, yeah. you know, thankfully it's been good. It's been really good, uh, a lot of fun and a good, uh, a great opportunity. Did you meet your wife out in Colorado? I did. I did. Okay. Yeah. We, we met out here and, uh, you know, which, uh, was a real, uh, blessing, you know, and, um, and we were together for quite a bit. And then just, uh, three years ago, you know, we, uh, uh had my son, yeah. uh, Ollie Oliver nice. and, uh, who is just, uh, you know, my whole world. I mean, you know, it being a father, you oh, know, yeah. I, it, it's funny. Everybody thinks is that I'm his grandfather, you know, now, cause <laughs> I got such a late start, but I almost feel like, well, uh, Finally, I'm getting mature enough to actually be a, a good dad. You know? <laughs> so, so anyway. Yeah, I don't know if they, I don't know if you ever are, and sometimes the immaturity can come in handy because you can read their mind or uh, relate <laughs> on that. That well, um, if we could, I want to circle back. You're originally from sure. Atlanta. What mm-hmm. what kind of got you into the kind of music and playing that you wanted to uh, that you're doing mostly now or doing a lot of. Well, I mentioned that mentorship thing early, mm-hmm. which is such a huge key. And I, if I, there's one thing I try to, you know, uh, uh, emphasize with young people is that it's important to find mentors and let people know that you're really interested in, in what they're doing and, uh, and try to spend as much time as you can with them, you know, go see them play, you know, you can't not go see them, you know, cause that doesn't really show any interest in what they're doing, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, but I had a few people that I met when I, early on in Atlanta, one was, uh, Sonny Emery oh, that wow. I studied, I studied with Sonny. Uh, uh, I had some great percussion teachers. Uh, I, my first teacher was, uh, Paul Yonchin who plays timpani with the Cleveland, uh, orchestra. Now okay. he was, uh, uh, you know, playing timpani in the Atlanta Symphony at the time. And somehow, you know, when I was uh, six or seven, he, uh, my mom talked him into teaching me. So, uh, so I studied with Paul and then when we went to Cleveland, I had a great teacher named Mike Sobolski that still lives in Atlanta. And then meanwhile, I, you know, I, I heard Sonny for the first time and I was like, oh my God, you know, like that's the greatest thing I've ever heard, you know, <laughs> that his feel, you know, and yeah. his groove. So I used to go see him play all the time, and I was like this little fearless kid, and uh, and and then he would start asking me to sit in, you know, and the musicians that he was playing with were just, you know, so funky, and uh, I, so I learned so much from him. How and old were you? Threw, How old were you at the time? Uh, at the time, I was in. Uh, I think I started studying with Sonny when I was in the seventh grade and, oh and studied with him for a little while formally. And then, you know, as I started to get a little bit older, I would just go see him play. You know, I would put on a suit <laughs> to try to get into some of these places, to, you know, to look old enough to get in, yeah. uh, to try to, get, to to go hear him play. And, uh, you know, I mean, he's one of my heroes, you know, and, 
and through him i met another drummer uh named jeff sipe uh yeah, yeah. and uh we we had a strange encounter because another drummer was like you got to meet my friend jeff sipe and i was like okay well great and he said well i tell you what we'll i'll arrange it we'll meet over at jeff's house and uh and we'll you know play together and at the time, Jeff was living with uh, O'Teal and uh, Kofi Burbridge. And so it was, a uh, you know. So anyways, I show up at his house, knock on the door. You know, I was maybe, uh, I don't know, a teenager at the time. And, you know, Jeff said, oh, okay, well, come on in. And, you know, we waited for our friend, but the friend never showed up. And so Jeff and I just sat down and we played. And really, from then on, uh, Jeff was one of my biggest advocates in Atlanta. So he would send me on gigs that I absolutely had no business playing. But he was like, it, you know, if he needed a sub or something, he would say, yeah, you know, call this, call this dude. And so I would, I would go out and play. That's how I met, uh, uh, Bruce Hampton, Colonel Bruce Hampton. Oh, wow. And, uh, so that kind of group of musicians in a way kind of, uh, uh, you know, raised me in, in, uh, you know, in a certain way, you know, they would tell me what to listen to. They'd give me stacks of records, uh, send me I home with that. them. Yeah. I love and that. say, he'd say, uh, you know, you're not going to really dig this now, but just keep make a cassette <laughs> of it and keep checking it out. You know, I love so, that. I had that in Columbus. I, I mentioned Vaughn Weister, the big band that I, and it's like, you'd go to his house and he'd, He'd always say, you got a turntable? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, and he'd go through and he'd pull out some records. He goes, here, I rescued these from a record store. You need to have them. And he'd say things, and I just love this, because it was just kind of this language, and especially in the jazz community that I miss so much. And he'd say, uh, so here's this, uh, this Stan Kenton record. Listen to it for enjoyment only for the first couple spins. Yeah. Then, that's funny. Then after that, then start listening. Start listening to what the drummer's doing. You know. Mm-hmm. But he yeah. always had his thing and he was always, you know, you know, rescuing jazz records from these record stores from people that had no idea what they had. Not that I do at all, but at the same time it was just like he would send you home with his collection and like this is yours now. Take care mm-hmm. of it. You know, and and I'm like, I, I at times I'm that you're again. It's this mentorship, uh-huh. it's this thing, and and I I wonder if it's just prevalent in certain scenes and certain genres or something like that. But uh, you know, people are like, oh, you should go listen to this, and now you could just you know pull it up on your phone or whatever. But uh-huh. um, just to have that mentorship as I'm here for you I'm going to set you in the right direction and uh, and support you and then let you go there's this kind of balance between holding your hand and pushing you and, yeah and that 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 was just so so valuable and and it sounds like you had a lot of that yeah I mean I, I didn't really th- I didn't really realize that of course at the time but sure it's, uh, you know it's funny i had a talk with uh i was in china uh at, performing at this jazz festival like pre maybe the year before a year or two before the pandemic and uh, frank gambali was the guitar player was mm-hmm. also playing there 
And that's the first, well, it's not the first time that I met him, but it's the first time like as a professional that I had been kind of, you know, engaged with him. But I had to remind him that uh, years ago at the Musicians Institute in it, uh, in Atlanta, uh, he came in to do a clinic. This must have been like in the uh, 80s, maybe 85 or so in Jeff Sipe was supposed to do it. And for some reason, he ended up not being able to do it. And so he, uh, you know, sent me. And so I showed up and, and played and, you know, didn't really know what I was doing. I mean, I was just trying to, I didn't know much about form, that sort of thing. And, and we were playing tunes like Humpty Dumpty, you know. And all I would do is just try to imitate Steve Gadd, you know, yeah. I mean, he was, he's a, still one of my big heroes and I would just try to play things that sounded like what he would play on those Chick Corea records. And, uh, and I have a cassette of it somewhere, but I, okay. I told him, relayed this story to him and, uh, he was like, wow, what a, you know, trip. And when I think about it, you know, it's just like, I really didn't know what I was doing at all, you know, but, uh, uh, getting just sort of thrown into some of those situations, uh, were, uh, you know, really kind of life changing and, uh, started to give me more confidence. Uh, and it's, I didn't realize at the time that it was kind of a unique opportunity. Right. But did he recall at all? Or is it like, I, you know, he didn't remember me yeah. necessarily. Uh, but he, I, I guess, you know, for years he would go down there to do things at the Musicians Institute down there, sure. uh, which is a great school. I mean, there's great, always had great guys teaching there in Atlanta, Craig Harbor. And one of my heroes is this cat, Tom Knight. That's down there in yeah, Atlanta. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. Tom, uh, we, Man, uh, my co-host interviewed him and oh, uh, good. it was, it was a cool thing. Yeah. Yeah. What a great player. Oh, yeah. He, we were in high school at the same time. He went to Stone Mountain, and uh, I was at Dunwoody High School. And so, uh, you know, I, I got to know him from doing all these, uh, like, jazz all-state things or jazz, you know, these, you know, community bands or whatever. And I, and Tom was unbelievable. And, you know, to see him, you know, the, the all the different things that he's done, you know. Yeah. It's it's still like he he's just such a highly intelligent person and and is continues to be a, a, an inspiration to me. So yeah, he's he's gotten his uh, as Vaughn used to say, uh, fingers in a lot of pies, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's right. it's so funny because it's like you talk about like I was really young when I did this, or I had to wear a suit to try and, and and go and see these people play, and then just just like minutes before you're talking about everyone thinking that you're a grandfather, I, man, I, uh, Jim, I think that maybe like you're in the wrong time zone or something like that. You know, <laughs> either you're too young or your people think you're too old, and <laughs> you're doing things yeah. out of sequence, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah maybe, maybe so. I don't know. I'm just trying to do them. You know, I guess. Uh, <laughs> how how they come that's right that's right just i'm just flowing like water man just just going going with the flow um and then he, this led you to uh tell me about what led you to north texas and and your experience there well uh i i met this you know another mentor you know who i stay in touch with to this day 
Uh, I met a guy named Bob Kerno who came to do the Georgia All-State Jazz Band uh, like my junior year of high school. And Bob was, you know, was involved with Kenton's band, had done all kinds of stuff. And he, you know, told me that he directed this band called the uh, McDonald's All-American High School Jazz Band and said, you know, you should audition uh, for the McDonald's band. And so I did. And like, I'm more of a Burger King guy. I don't know. You know, I don't want to piss anybody off, but yeah, okay, I'll try it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, they they used to sponsor these great things. I'm not even sure if they're doing it anymore. Yeah, I wonder. But but they took these students and from, you know, from all over the country and a lot of people that I still keep in contact with today. But uh, but Bob was directing that band, and so the scene, our senior year of high school, we would tour all over the country. Like I remember going to t- Hawaii for two weeks, and wow. and uh, and we would just play these concerts like we were on the road. And Bob would teach us thing certain things, you know. Like I remember him, uh, we all had our books, you know, that had all the music in it. Yeah. And so we, when we get on the bus, he would say, "Look, I want everybody to." you know, put your hands on your music and inadvertently, you know, there would be somebody that either left their music and would have to go back up and get it in their hotel room or something. But that's something that sticks with me today. Oh like gosh, I know it. Yes. I, yeah. I, I'm like, okay, I gotta have my music and I, you know, but, uh, anyways, he was, he really encouraged me to continue to, uh, study music and, you know, he was like, oh, man, you got to go to uh, North Texas. He was insistent on it. And so he called down there and talked to uh, Neil Slater, uh, who was running the JS Studies program at the time. And then, you know, uh, shortly after I got a call from Neil and he was like, man, we, we want to, you know, get you to come to school. And uh, and so I ended up going to school there. And it was, you know, really the best thing that ever happened. Uh, because, you know, at the time there were so many incredible drummers there that are all kind of working professionally today, mm-hmm. you know, and I just learned so much from, from everybody that was down there. And that's when the whole, you know, listening, uh, you know, uh, playing a lot of jazz music uh, was, you know, that's when that kind of love really took off and, and trying to, really study that music what and what year like roughly around that this time well i was uh i entered north texas in the fall of 87 okay and uh and started playing with the bands there um and uh you know just had uh some again some fortunate opportunities uh but i think one thing that really you know, I was starting to transcribe more things, uh, like formally write them down. And, uh, you know, anything that I played that had like a history to it, you know, if we were playing, you know, Count Basie's music, or I would play a tune that I didn't know, you know, I would always write it down. And then I would go home and make sure that I checked out the original recordings of the tune to kind of give me some perspective, you know, and, uh, and that became kind of a really important thing for my learning, you know, um, and, and, you know, and any great musician that I have worked with or I'm um, friends with, you know, that's the one thing that, you, you know, that everybody has in common is they have listened, you know, to so much music yeah. 
and can can relate to so many different uh, things. And and that's how you learn how to play and you learn how to develop your ears, you know, what, from listening to records. And then you'll be able to apply that when you're actually playing in a musically democratic situation where you can, you know, you're not so focused on yourself and you can really focus on the other people that you're playing with. Uh, and so that's, you know, one of the things that I think I started to do there to help my confidence as a player. I just um, love that term, musically democratic situation. And it just, it, it's, yeah, it, it, that's, it explains itself. It's so great. I love that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's times when, you know, it's like, uh, man, I really don't have a whole lot of time to woodshed, and, and but it's like if I just find some good things to listen to, I'm stuck on a plane, I'm stuck on a bus or whatever, um, guess what? You know, I can grow from this just listening and just diving into diving into more or, or uh, something I'm less familiar with or maybe into the genre of the artists that I'm going to be working with. Not necessarily their, maybe it's not even their songs. Maybe it's just more of that t type of music or, or whatever, just to grow your ears and, and hear what people have been doing uh, before you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, you know, it, and it kind of gives you a frame of reference. You know, a lot of times if you're recording some music and they have an idea of uh, what they want, then, you know, a lot of times they're speaking in, uh, you know, music terms that relate to another uh, drummer or another artist or the vibe of, of something. And the more knowledge that you have um, of that, different styles of music, the, the better you're, you know, you're going to be in, you know, trying to serve the music in the way that maybe somebody envisioned it. Yeah. Yeah. So just out of North Texas, you got the gig with Manor Ferguson. Is that correct? I, I did. Yeah. I was, uh, still in school at the time and, uh, they, they had, they had wanted to, uh, you know, take, uh, uh, they, like the tour where they started to, to need somebody was, uh, I was still in school and I wanted to finish. I just had a couple weeks to go. And, uh, anyways, they said, well, we got to go with another drummer. And then, uh, you know, a couple weeks later they, they called and said, Hey, you know, we'd still like to have you come out if you can. And I was said, sure. You know, I finished, I had got my degree and, uh, and just, I think the first gig I flew to Philadelphia and we played that night, there was no rehearsal or anything. They didn't send me any charts, you know, they sent me a recording of the gig. Oh, wow. And, uh, and so that's, I kind of learned, uh, I just learned the music from that really from listening to recordings like Chris Brown play the gig who just played it, you know, so great. And, uh, um, and so, and then I did that for a year. That was all in 92. And I kind of got, that was my first time going to Europe because we played all over Europe and, uh, I mean, played all over the country because he would stay out like six weeks at a time, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, Maynard's energy level was just, uh, something else, you know, and, mm -hmm. 
he would sit back, you know, he would come hang with us on the bus and, you know, would tell stories about Frankie Dunlop and, you know, all these folks that different people that had played in, in his band. And so it was a really, you know, I, I didn't even really realize it at the time, you know, but how great of that experience that was, you know, going to Japan, you know, playing yeah. the blue notes in Japan. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and, and I and actually getting to do a recording with him, yeah. uh, you know. So just in a year's time, I, I you know I think I was able to you know take advantage of a lot of opportunities that that gig presented. He was drinking alone at midnight when suddenly it hit him. There were a lot of second chances out there, but you had to go get them. Juso was the darkest place in a tricky part of town. And sure enough, they picked up something he could not put down. She was a real go-getter. Smooth and brown. Like a morning dove, a little bit better. She was those warm blinking lights you see driving in from the edge of town. Hey, listener, this is the song Brown by J.T. Souther that Jim and I take some extra time to talk about and deconstruct this session for this recording. So if you are a member of our Patreon community, you can check out that extra bonus conversation that Jim and I have about the recording and what took place that day in the studio. So that bonus content is on our Patreon page, but now on with the rest of the conversation. If we can, I'd like to just take just a couple minutes and, and, and talk about when you were diagnosed with, with cancer and what that was like. That was around 2015, 2016. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Yeah, at 2015, you okay. know, Mar- May 13th, diagnosis, May 27th, surgery, and then, uh, you know, radiation and chemotherapy followed and... Uh, you know, what a life-changing experience. You know, I, I uh, am so thankful that for my doctors and everything. And, um, yeah, you know, they found a, a tumor in my uh, what's called your ampullary vater. And, unfortunately, to get the tumor out, you they have to do this pr- pr- uh, procedure called the Whipple. And so they, um, which is the same, it's, it's the same as uh, for any, uh, like pancreatic cancer. So they got to take out part of your pancreas and part of your stomach and part of your intestine and your duodenum and your gallbladder. And they kind of replumb your whole system, but it's a very long surgery. And, uh, I was in the hospital for three weeks, Mm. which is a long time. I tell people time ticks much slower than 60 beats per minute while you're in the hospital. (laughs) And, uh, it's so, uh, uh, you know, but it was a a real uh, mind blowing experience because you you never th- you know I never thought oh yeah like cancer that's something that I'm going to be faced with you know and uh, I couldn't play you know I mean once I had I had gigs booked during the summer and I remember my surgeon who's just amazing down in Denver um, I said well you know, I'm going to get this operation done tomorrow. What, what's, uh, you know, like when will I be able to kind of get back to work? You know, like I need to get back to my, 
my job. And I remember him telling me, well, for the next year, this is your job. Your job is to, you know, heal your body and, uh, and go through these treatments that you need. He said, I, I, you're really lucky to even that I can do this surgery because he said, you know, at least half the people or more when they, uh, you know, when they come to me, I have to, there's all kinds of treatments that have to happen before to try to shrink the tumor. And, uh, so, uh, you know, how this person, you know, has the balls to show up at six in the morning and cut some person open and like, be like, oh yeah. I can, I can fix this. It's like a whole nother level. You know, I'm right, like, right, right. I used to get, you know, nervous before a gig, you know what I mean? I'm like, this is a gig for this cat. You know, it's like silly for me to get nervous. I mean, I could play absolutely horrible, but nobody's going to die. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, wow. so it, it gave me a lot of per- perspective continues to, because I'm still a part of this, uh, community, uh, that nobody wants to be in, you know, and, uh, uh, I still go three days a week to the cancer rehab center to work with, uh, my personal trainers there that try to keep me in shape. And, um, you know, I've still regularly getting CAT scans, getting, uh, MRIs and, uh, things to monitor, you know, to see if there's a, a recurrence. So, the interesting thing is that, you know, once you finish all of your treatments and everything, you think that you might be done with the cancer, you know, but I tell people it's, it's not really done with you because there's such a psychological component of, uh, you know, the fear of recurrence mm-hmm. and, you know, going to get these uh, diagnostic tests done and feeling like that they're going to tell you that it has returned, um, I've lost so many of my friends, people that were doing really great and uh, encouraging me when I first got diagnosed. And a lot of those people are gone now, you know. Wow, wow. So it really puts a perspective on life uh, and asks you to sort of, uh, you know, get you to sort of rethink your values, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, so it has been and continues to be uh, uh, you know, one of those life changing experiences. I'm six years, uh, since my diagnosis and, uh, I'm cancer free. I hopefully will continue to, uh, to be that. And I'm just, it's, I'm so lucky to just be here, you know, today. I mean, I, um, it's something, the little things that I appreciate, uh, now, that I didn't really, uh, you know, that you just don't even think about, like just like being able to go to the bathroom normally, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like that's mm-hmm. like something that seems mundane, you know, but uh, being able to do that, uh, you know, not having any uh, extra hardware or anything like that to have to, to, mm-hmm. to deal with is really, uh, uh, you know, really a blessing. So, that's amazing, man. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, man, we're, it's it's such a blessing to have you, dude, and it's such a blessing to have you here today, man, speaking with us. And 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 I'm just I follow and I've I've seen things on social media, and it's like I just it, it, 
it just seemed like such a fighter, man. It's 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 and and my my hope is that it that your story is inspiring for anybody that's that that you know is potentially facing what you went through you know six years ago and what you were feeling at that time, and mm-hmm. that, you know so. Well, I, I thank you, and I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, you know, I mean, it, it was a kind of a heavy experience because I felt like I got, uh, you know, so much support that I didn't even really knew, I didn't really even know that I had. Mm-hmm. And I, was, I wasn't sure, you know, if I was going to play anymore or not. Mm-hmm. And uh, so much of my life has been about, you know, trying to, you know, play music and, and make other people sound good. And I think, you know, uh, it's kind of heavy, but I think so much since I'd been doing that for so much of my life, so much of my self-esteem, you know, came around, came from playing music. And that was something that sort of gave me a lot of self-esteem, you know, but as we get older, you know, when we start, you know, becoming aware of all the, the great masters, you know, it's really hard to, uh, you know, uh, when somebody may tell you that you sounded good, most of the time we don't really believe them anyways, you know, because <laughs> we know, you know, what these great masters sound like. Yeah. And uh, so I think a lot of my self-esteem used to, to to sort of come from that. And it wasn't until I got sick and this community was really supporting me that I realized, well, you know, there's a lot of love coming this way. And it doesn't, it's not because I'm, playing music with them or I can make them sound good that just for, you know, just being Jim White, you know, that people, uh, um, you know, there's, uh, you know, people will like me just because of who I am, not because I play the drums. And that's the first time that I ever really realized that. And so kind of coming to music now from that perspective it's been really different. And I, I, most of all these days, I just cherish getting to play with my friends, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Uh, because there's so much of a connection there and a bond. And, you know, uh, ultimately, you know, I think when you're in a situation where people will allow you to suck and still <laughs> accept you, you know what I mean? That's where like a lot of uh, learning, uh, um, you know, can happen yeah yeah dude i I just i love that it's so amazing i I think there's times in our life where we get caught up in the hustle when we're trying to become professional musicians and we create these connections with people you know under the auspices of trying to get work and we never have those really good bonds there was a time in our life when we made connections with musicians and we started bands or you know we played with other musicians and they became real friends because there was no agenda we were just all in the same boat and just having a good time and found this mutual love of music and 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 formed uh that was kind of the introduction to a, a real friendship but as you go through life and if you're if you're choosing to try and be a professional musician you create these sometimes f- fake friendships or fake fake connections uh again and 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 it's um yeah it it is really interesting when 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 you really need somebody uh who who's there for you, and um and and what a blessing to have discovered that you have people that surround you for who you are 
and being Jim White and not being and and that the word drummer or musician is not in front of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because that's how I, you know, I was always just little Jimmy that played the drums, and you know, and yeah. and uh, so there's sort of these other things kind of, you know, really. Uh, you know, changed my perspective mm. and I'm a much happier person, I gotta say. And, uh, it's, and I feel like that I can approach music in a way that is, uh, I can be less forgiving of myself. And, and when, you know, the gig is over, you know, as they say, I just try to put it in the case and, uh, and kind of, you know, move on without, uh, just uh, ruminating over e- every little thing, you know. And and to just touch on one of the things you just mentioned, um, you know, of course, social media has really changed so much compared to when I, you know, started my career. And uh, I think one of the things that's important to, to keep in mind for a lot of young younger players is that, you know, you can't tell somebody how good you are. You can't tell somebody that you meet for the first time, like, hey, trust me. I'm great. And, you know, you go see somebody for the first time and you're like, I'm, you know, can I sit in or, you know, uh, you know, it takes time. I, I mean, it's a really a people business, you know, and it takes time to develop relationships. Uh, and then from that, you know, maybe there's going to be an opportunity where somebody's going to say, Hey, well, where are you playing? I, you know, you, I yeah. see you around and I'd really like to hear you play. And then maybe they come, you know, somebody comes and hears you and then other opportunities will, uh, present themselves, you know? So yeah. I still think that that is the best way that you can cultivate some, uh, some longer lasting relationships, um, that are, uh, more significant than just, uh, okay, I see, you know, I, I just saw a, 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 a video of you practicing on Instagram and this is the guy, you know, I, from my experience, things don't really, uh, uh, develop like that. It's really mm-hmm. just from relationships, like mentioning the cancer experience, you know, I remember laying in the hospital and all of a sudden I get like a Facebook message from, an incredible drummer named JT Lewis, who's been in New York for many, many years. And uh, he, so he sends me a message. He'd been working with uh, Vanessa Williams with a, a mm-hmm. great friend of mine, Henry Hay. And I guess Henry had communicated to him uh, of the, about the cancer and everything. And, um, and so he sent me a Facebook message that said, Hey, you know, like I, you know, was going through the, the you know, the similar, uh, cancer experience and, you know, still doing chemo and I'm here, you know, if you need anything, he, he was basically introducing himself. And yeah. I was like, JT Lewis, man, I, you know, I saw him like many times with Herbie Hancock, you know, mm-hmm. when I was growing up. he did all of the like rocket tours and all of that stuff he was playing like the simmons i mean super super funky and uh and so you know here's this guy reaching out you know and uh and so and we became you know we've become really good friends you know he's his support has been amazing he came through uh before the pandemic with his group uh harriet tubman which is just killer if you've never you guys never heard that um uh, and it was amazing. And that's the first time that we met in person. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was, uh, you know, it was 
a great experience, but you know, here's this other uh, situation that caused us to relate. It wasn't really music that that kind of connected us, yeah. you know. Yeah. And uh, and then the other thing I would just add is that you know, in this day and age of piecemealing things together, uh, you know, I, I had to. I would always record if anybody wanted me to do that. I would. We have an incredible studio here at our university, and there's a great engineer. His name's Greg Heinbecker, and so uh, I would always go. And if I needed to do that, I would just go to our studio here. Well, of course, during the pandemic, that couldn't happen, you know. So, Mm -hmm. just like everybody else, I was scrambling to get you know better mic pre's and Mm -hmm. you know uh, to be able to record at home and figure out the whole video thing, you know. But it's been uh it's it's nothing nothing like playing with musicians in the yeah. same room yeah. and so you know that's one of the things that i loved about nashville is because no matter what you would always get that rhythm section together you know even if something was going to be redone like a vocal or something and you would have that uh, uh situation that live situation to play in and uh you know for instance when we did jd souther's first record uh, we recorded that at Blackbird, but all in uh, uh, the rec- George Massenberg's, uh, uh, you know, booth there essentially, which is a huge room. Okay, yeah. but but JD wanted to get everybody in there in one. Uh, it's his control room, is what I meant to say. And uh, JD wanted to get everybody in the same room and make this record. You know, yeah. and so that's what we did, you know, and, and Chris Walters, uh, Rob McGaha, Jeff Coffin, uh, Dan Emmel on bass. Uh, we just were all in the same room uh, recording it. And to all the stuff that you hear on there, it's just live takes. You know, I think J.D. overdubbed some of his vocals, but um, not no click, you know, none, mm-hmm. nothing, just just playing. Just playing. You know, and I think those situations really help you to develop your ears, you know. Oh, and yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And JD's one of those incredible guys. There's a track on that record. It's called The Secret Handshake of Fate. Yeah. And it was one of those things that, uh, kind of like the Charlie Peacock thing, where, you know, JD said, okay, well, I got this other tune. <laughs> that we that i want to record and we were like okay great we'll just teach it to us and we'll do it and he goes no i don't want to teach it to you i just want to record it and you guys just you know react to what i'm doing we had to go back in and you know repunch a few you know bass notes and you know it's not something that was really complex yeah but it was all of the horn backgrounds you know everything was just done you know, what you hear is pretty much what just happened. Yeah. And so as we're, you know, we're just hearing the tune for the first time, which, you know, J.D.'s such an amazing songwriter. It's a great song. Yeah. But the fact that he wanted to sort of capture, you know, like the spirit of an improvisational moment, you know, sure. he, he kind of has that in his nature, uh, was, uh, you know, one of those unusual Nashville situations but um, I think that's that this that type of situation is so important for people to make sure that you're playing with live musicians as much as possible because that's that's what's really developing your ears and we're accompanists, right? I mean, yeah, we are yeah. accompanists, yeah. and so we our job is to make others mm-hmm. uh, sound 
great. No matter if you think they're less experienced uh, than you are, our job is to make them sound incredible. And there's a great clip that I listened to for inspiration uh, that from, you know, Baby Dodds, one of the pioneers of the instrument. But there's a recording, I think you can find it on YouTube, but uh, he did, Bill Russell did a series of interviews with him and um, and there's one segment, and it's called Playing for the Benefit of the Band. Wow. And it is 13 minutes of just pure gold, you know. And if and whenever I'm questioning, you know, what I'm doing, I go back and I listen to that recording because he touches on every aspect. That's you know, amazing. And this was, this was done, I think, maybe the late 40s or early 50s. And... I just encourage everybody to check that out because that is almost everything that you need to know <laughs> about being a drummer encapsulated in yeah. 13 minutes. And how it applies so much now. To every style. Yeah, every yeah, style, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, it's so amazing. You know, it's so funny because we had a great drummer, Mark Stepro, on a couple of weeks ago and we we're talking about home recording. He goes, yeah, when I was a kid growing up playing with my friends, I wasn't saying to myself, when I grow up, my dream is to email wave files. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I want to play yeah. with people, you know, and know how to, and, and to make that disconnect, or that the disconnect can happen when we're just, you know, not allowing your ears to just dictate how you're going to react to, to music and stuff. That's, man, that's that's awesome. Yeah, it's a, it's a totally different thing you know i i think it's important that we all keep that same spirit that you know i mean i i remember when i you know when i first started playing it wasn't it wasn't for anybody other than me yeah you know because that's what brought me joy you know i mean i would go play you know put on my records at the time and i had my long headphone cable and you know play along to uh you know led zeppelin recordings and <laughs> phil rudd man phil yeah, rudd yeah, is like sure. the jimmy cobb of rock drumming to me you know <laughs> yeah. and playing along with those records and all that was just for my joy you right, know right. and and i think that it's important for us to keep in, uh, in mind that the the reasons that we started playing and then try to play, bring those things that don't really have anything to do with music to your music mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it's everything outside of music that really influences our music you know whether it's seeing movies or reading a book or being out in uh, nature or having a, a fight with your significant other or you know a breakup or, or all this stuff that's what really inspires music you know and and uh so I think it's important for everybody to realize that all of your life experiences are the things that are going to contribute to your music and give you something to express on your instrument, you know? Yeah. So are you teaching now? Is is summer 
uh, in full swing now up in Colorado or what's going on? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, summer now, and so I've always had my uh, my summers off here as far as my teaching duties go, which has been nice because it's allowed me to, you know, keep this gig and, you know, uh, take advantage of things like doing the, you know, the Allison Krauss uh, tour that was mostly during kind of the summer, kind of overlapped the school year a little bit, but, uh, uh you know, playing the festivals and all the stuff that happens during the summer, uh, it kind of helped me sort of keep my gig here, but then also get the experience of playing with those people who are just, you know, some of the best musicians in the world. I, I learned so much from, from them mm -hmm. and from her and, uh, Jerry Douglas, you mentioned earlier yeah, and everything. Yeah, gosh. So, so anyhow, what's on the docket for this, this, the rest of this year or this summer? Well, I'm still, uh, you know, Denver's really kind of opened up, uh, you know, just recently. And so I kind of have some regular gigs here in town, mm -hmm. uh, with, uh, uh, you know, great musicians here, great saxophonist, uh, Peter Summer and piano player, Ben Markley and a uh, great bass player, uh, Seth Lewis. So we're doing these things, you know, here in town, um, I've been doing some stuff with Brad Good, who's an incredible trumpet player, one of my good buddies. Uh, um, we just did a couple of recordings and video things uh, with him and uh, the great tenor player Ernie Watts and uh, Eric Gunnison on piano and Kelly Sill, who lives in Chicago playing bass, uh, which is always a, a, a you know a real treat. And then um, and at the end of July. Um, uh, Ari Honig is doing a big band record of all of his music that I am uh, producing oh, wow. uh, at the end of the at the end of the month. And uh, this great uh, writer uh, Ben Markley is his name uh, that I mentioned. You know, playing uh, piano, he's done all the arrangements. Okay, and so uh, so it's it's very challenging music, and I got to you know, try to wrap my head around it. Wow. Ari's been a friend of mine for years from kind of back. He's younger than me, but he, uh, we kind of overlapped somehow there at North Texas and, uh, have always been good friends. And, you know, he, he, like the many other students that were there, you know, uh, teach me, continue to teach me. And, uh, and that was, Aside from studying with uh, Ed Sof, which was, you know, who's like this amazing guru uh, who taught all of us, uh, you know, it, it, that's where a lot of the education came from is from our, you know, just your peers. Right, right. And right. Yeah. I'm so thankful. And everybody's involved in doing different things, you know, like yeah. I always enjoy seeing Jason Sutter, you yeah. know, who, you know, is, is doing so many different kinds of things and I mean, there's just so many people that were there at the same time. It's crazy um, that I've learned so much from. Yeah, yeah, and 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 we all can learn from now and 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 watch those guys and listen to them. It's it's been a lot of fun, and a lot of them have been on on here, and and it's giving us all a chance to to learn more. But man, this has yeah. been this has been a, a a treat, man. It's good to see you, uh, catch up with you. It's been way too long. Um, and I'm just, I'm glad I have like, uh, I, I started a podcast six years ago to give me a chance to, to call Jim White someday and say, Hey man, 
<laughs> well, it's a good excuse. <laughs> well, thank you, Matt. I mean, I, I like I said, I'm uh, you know I, I'm so thankful that you called, and I'm honored to be here, and it's great to see you, yeah. and uh, and talk to you, and uh, you know, I really appreciate it. Sure, man. It's been a pleasure catching up with you, and uh, and keep in touch with us, man. All right, keep me posted, and uh, you know, let me know how everything shakes out. I will. Great. Have a good rest. Have a good rest of your day. You too. All right. Take care. Take care. See ya. See you, buddy. Bye. So there you have it. My conversation with Jim White. It was so good to see him and catch up with him after all these years, and such great news to hear about his health and how he's remaining active especially after the crazy year that we've all had. But what a great guy, what a great musician, and uh, so glad he took some time to speak with us. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview with Stephen Bidwell from the Black Pumas. Also, one quick reminder, if you are around the Nashville area or plan to visit us August 7th and 8th, come out to the Music City Drum Show. It's going to be a great event. It's going to be tons of people, great hang, that Sunday, the 8th, we're going to have a huge hang in the afternoon uh, with Zach and I and Mike Dawson and J.C. Clifford come out and hang, and um, hopefully we'll get a chance to see each other in person for the first time in a really long time. So I know I always say, uh, hope to see you around, and this is going to be a, uh, a great opportunity to see everyone, uh, but put that on your calendar. Music City Drum Show, August 7th and a big podcast hang on the 8th. But for now, thanks for listening, and I hope to see you around, especially in August. See ya. Bye-bye.